Welcome to Columbus Perspective, a weekly public affairs presentation of The Fan. I'm Dave James. In a moment, Kate Burdett talks with the project director of the Native American Indian Center of Central Ohio. Dr. Bruce Vanderhoff, director of the Ohio Department of Health, has an update on what's going around these days as far as respiratory illnesses. In about 20 minutes, courtesy of our sister station, WBNS 10 TV, Doug Petcash reviews the recent election in Ohio and talks with a new mayor of Whitehall who starts at the end of the year. And I'll wrap up the hour talking with Dwayne Casares. He's the CEO of Directions for Youth and Families. I'm Kate Burdett, and it is Native American Heritage Month. The Native American Indian Center of Central Ohio is devoted to preserving and restoring balance in the lives of Native Americans through traditional, cultural, educational, family, community, and wellness-driven values and initiatives. We are joined by Ty Smith. He's the project director at NACO here in Columbus. Hi, Ty. Welcome to Columbus Perspective. Hey, Kate. Thanks for having me. So tell me um, a little bit about, for those who may not have heard, of the Native American Indian Center of Central Ohio, or as we shorten it, NACO. Tell me about the center. Where is it? How long has it been there? And what do you do? Yeah, yeah. So... We're located on the south side of town. Um, NACO's been in existence since 75, 1975, uh, founded by a wonderful woman named Selma Walker. Um, in her passing, her daughter and her uh, son-in-law, Mark and Carol Welch, took over. They were the second set of hands to stand in as management. And uh, currently, my wife and I, Masami Smith, the executive director, and I, the project director, are now the third set of hands to stand in as management. And, um, you know, you read our, our mission statement, and it's, it's very broad, uh, but at the end of the day, there's really three main areas that we focus on. Uh, one is cultural preservation, restoration, two is social development, and three is economic development uh, slash sustainability of our agency. And um, there's so much to unpack probably per each one. Uh, but at the end of the day, when we talk about culture, this is really um, the traditions and the ways and the values of our people. And uh, social development is really the fact that there's there's roughly about, according to the census now, and this is the best uh, secondary data that we have to work with because Ohio is a state that has really zero infrastructure in place when compared to other places out west, which we'd often refer to as Indian country. But when we look at the census, we find that there's roughly about 35,000 um, Native Americans, Alaska Natives that live in Ohio. And that equates to roughly 0.3% of the state's population. Um, NACO serves as the only viable urban Indian center in the state. So our efforts extend basically to all corners of the state and even beyond sometimes. Um, but our work is really driven by, by the voice of the people. And back in 2011, we had a really unique opportunity to engage the community in a planning grant. And they really just underscored and, and lifted up the, um, the value of culture, but also uh, community. And so hence, you know, cultural preservation, restoration, and social development. Um, these are better reflected in um, the programs that we offer. And so we provide as many programs, activities, and events to really try to do our best to promote that. And um, when we talk about economic uh, development, sustainability, 
Um, oftentimes that's better referred to as NACO cuisine, or at least that's one arm of it. And NACO cuisine, if uh, people aren't out there familiar with it, is it's a food trailer that we started back in uh, 2020. And um, it's been in, actually last year was the, the, the tail, or this year, I should say, 2023 was um, the third year in existence. And uh, we've had a really wonderful run. Uh, but anyway, this is an opportunity for us to share our food, our culture, um, but also to bring our own into the fold. And so still, this is, again, about culture. It's about social development, um, you know, uh, community. Um, there's, there's a variety of other things, but it's about raising awareness, visibility. Um, and so there's just some really awesome pieces to it. But ultimately, too, it, it's about sustaining our agency. So the, the revenue that's generated by way of NACO Cuisine does go back into um, uh, sustaining our agency. So it helps keep the lights on, but also uh, helps um, furnish uh, the, the programming that we have. So it's kind of a um, social enterprise as a part of your organization. Yeah, social enterprise would be a good way to say it. Absolutely. And again, it was uh, the community's voice that really brought this idea forward. And uh, I don't know, and, and hats off to all of our supporters, our followers, I even say our stalkers sometime out there. But uh, we have a lot of really wonderful people who have lifted us up in central Ohio. So, you know, kudos to them and, you know, much thanks and gratitude for the success that we've had thus far. Now, the center itself, is that typically open or is it sort of something that you use as a building when you have programming? Is it a place where the public, the general public could go for education and things like that? We are more directing our our mission and vision work is certainly directed towards those that um, personify all that we, we stand for as an urban Indian center in central Ohio. So to answer your question, no, we are not open at, you know, we do not have regular nine to five hours. Uh, oftentimes we do a lot of our administrative work at our agency building. Uh, but then too, we also offer a variety of uh, programming and events and activities. And here and there, uh, we try to uh, make room for different um people, you know, that are non-native, but right now the best um, option that we have is by way of NACO Cuisine. And it's really, I think, a nice way to engage the general public. And again, it comes back to what I said earlier about raising awareness, visibility, but also, you know, sharing um, just, you know, some of our, our wonderful cuisine that we have to offer by way of, you know, being Native American. And if someone wants to find out where they can track down that food trailer, I would imagine your website is probably a great place to start. N-A-I-C-C-O, NACO.com is the website. And there is a lot of information. I have I have been on the site for a while now. They they really, at, at this organization, I have to say that you, Ty, and, and your cohorts are doing a wonderful job of making your presence known, making your selves available, it seems, for for the community. And I find it so interesting that um, here in Ohio, yours is the only center of, of its nature. So do you find yourselves traveling to other parts of the state to, to further this mission? Absolutely. 
And, you know, coming back to, to your earlier question you were asking about, you know, are we open to the public? And to be honest with you, as a mom and pop operation, which we really are, husband and wife, it, uh, it's a very tall order at times, you know, but we're not here to talk about how hard it is, but to really, you know, reflect on the fact that it can be very rewarding at times. And uh, so our work is definitely focused on those that identify as Native American, Alaska Native. And um, yeah, it, it takes us to all corners of the state for sure. But at the same time, it's really, um, I guess it's, we're, we're, geographically, we're, we're, we're situated in, in, in a very nice spot, you know, being in the middle of the state, but also in the capital. And so it makes it so that, um, I don't know, we're accessible. So we become um, this kind of one-stop shop in a sense, but uh, ultimately at the end of the day, it's about really making space and creating a, a sense of home for our people. And um, I want to use that too to kind of segue into one of our major campaigns that we have going right now and that's land back NACO. And we're aspiring to purchase land in the central Ohio area. And we're hoping that would be at least a minimum of 20 acres. Uh, we've been at this campaign for roughly since about 2019. And we were intending to set a mark of 250,000. And to be honest, you know, when, when one goes down this path or when as an agency and with our leadership, our board of directors, uh, board of trustees and other um, leaders in our community, we have to kind of think, well, what does is, what is a mark like 250000 mean? And anyway, we have hit that mark, actually, at the middle of last month, October, and we are just, like, really excited. But we are going to continue forward to fundraise, and obviously, you know, the more we can bring in, you know, the better situated we'll be to uh, hopefully buy, you know, a piece of land that's I don't know of the highest quality possible, but anyway, land back NACO is a campaign. I don't want to use this time to try to, you know, uh, sell the concept of what we're doing here, but I do want to make it, you know, the point that th this is um, very important to us. And when you look at a state like Ohio, there really is, again, like I said earlier, no infrastructure in place. And that means, you know, there's this state is without um, any reservations. It's out without any, um, regular, you know, types of agencies you would find, you know, in, in, in what we refer to as Indian country, like the Bureau of Indian Affairs, uh, Indian Health Services, Bureau of Indian Education. So we become that, again, that, that piece that's trying to do our best to create that sense of home. Well, in that storyline, our people have certainly emphasized the fact that, you know, how awesome it would be to have an actual piece of land that we can call ours. So hence, you know, land back NACO, and again, you know, this isn't meant to be a commercial for, you know, trying to fundraise, but at the same time, this is very real in what we're doing. And, um, you know, I don't want to get too far off track here, but one has to take into account, too, that in a state like Ohio that, you know, forcibly, you know, removed its Native people, those that were the original Indigenous people of this area, clear back in the 1840s, um, you know, what we're trying to do here, it, it becomes very important. So our intention of, is to, to write a new um, successful chapter in Native American history here in Ohio by way of uh, this new emergence of Native people who we are. Um, and better yet, you know, this is our intertribal community at NACO. Well, it seems like you have quite a, a really daunting task ahead of you, but you certainly have had success so far, and I can't wait to see 
what happens next when you do buy that land and what blossoms forth from that? Because clearly you've got a very strong kind of basis for this in, in place. Was there anything else that you wanted to add today? Well, I just want to give mention to that. You know, we come into a time period, you know, right at this time of the year. And we, you know, here we are, you know, roughly in the middle of uh, Native American Heritage Month. But at the same time, we don't want it to be that it's just a one and done, you know, or it's a, a flash in the pan kind of moment for us as Native people. I just ask, you know, that people be understanding that our presence is here, you know, and we're doing our best to to create a, a vehicle by way of NACO cuisine, a warm handshake, but at the same time situate ourselves to to have a real sense of home through Landback NACO or uh, yeah, Landback NACO. And um, so anyway, if people want to learn more about us, obviously you know they can check out our website as you you know you talked about earlier, and uh, we're on social media: Facebook, Instagram, Twitter. So yeah, by all means, you know. And we also ask too, you know, uh, uh, people understand we get so many requests, you know, by way of uh, social media, email, phone calls. But uh, we're we're super busy, and we got a lot going on. Ty Smith is the project director for the Native American Indian Center of Central Ohio. We thank him so much for his time today. That website again is naicconico.com. I'm Kate Burdett. Columbus Perspective is a public affairs presentation of WBNS Radio. The opinions expressed on this program are those of its guests and do not necessarily reflect those of WBNS Radio, its staff, management, or sponsors. 911, what is your emergency? My kid shot himself. All right, where's the wounds? 911, what's your emergency? Please help. My, my son shot his brother. Every day, eight kids and teens are unintentionally killed or injured by loaded and unlocked guns. Learn how to make your home safer at endfamilyfire.org. Brought to you by the Ad Council and End Family Fire. I get it. Your desk has been there for you. Holding up your computer, your unused stapler, and that plant you forgot to water. But maybe it's time to leave your desk and spend your lunch break volunteering with Meals on Wheels. Doing Meals on Wheels for me is the joy that I look for at the end of my week. I'll come to the door with one meal and I'll walk away with a full heart. Drop off a warm meal and get more than you expect. Volunteer at americaletsdolunch.org. That's americaletsdolunch.org. Brought to you by Meals on Wheels America and the Ad Council. This is Columbus Perspective on the Fan. On Thursday of this week, Dr. Bruce Vanderhoff, director of the Ohio Department of Health, provided an update on what's going around in Ohio these days and had some reminders about the importance of vaccines. This just runs about five minutes. I'm Dr. Bruce Vanderhoff, director of the Ohio Department of Health. It's hard to believe that the holiday season is upon us already. It's a wonderful time of year in so many ways. But as I've shared before, a season when Ohio and the nation typically see an increase in respiratory viruses. At this point last year, you probably recall, we were in the midst of a dramatic spike in both influenza and RSV cases. Now, I'm happy to report that is not yet the case this year. Flu cases remain minimal in Ohio, although we are seeing a slight increase in several southeastern states. Likewise, we are starting to see a small increase in RSV cases in Ohio, but like with the flu, this is nothing like we saw this time last year. Now, regarding COVID-19, the slight surge we experienced late in the summer seems to have receded. 
although there have been ups and downs week to week. This is good news. But at the same time, history tells us that we will almost certainly see some sort of winter surge in COVID-19, RSV, and influenza. That underlines the importance of taking advantage of this current window of opportunity to get vaccinated against these diseases. For RSV, it is especially important if you have a newborn age eight months or younger and mom did not receive a vaccine during pregnancy. If this is your situation, I encourage you to contact your provider and get your child an RSV shot now. While influenza for most of us does not lead to hospitalization or severe illness, it does for some. And especially for seniors, it can be a very serious illness. Again, the flu shot is readily available. A surge in flu cases is almost certainly inevitable. And this is the perfect time to get the protection you need from a flu shot. And of course, we have the updated COVID vaccine that in September was approved and recommended for anyone six months of age or older. So far, more than 882,000 Ohioans have received this vaccine, or about 7.6% of the population. The vaccine is particularly important, as I've mentioned before, for those age 65 and older or who are immunocompromised. About 24% of Ohioans 65 and older have received the new vaccine. Now, whether we're talking about RSV, for which you know vaccination is, is much newer, or we're talking about pertussis, a vaccine that has been around for a long time, or any of the longer list of vaccine-preventable uh, illnesses, diseases like measles, mumps, uh, you know, um, uh, tetanus, many others, uh, the vaccines are our best and most essential tool of prevention. And it is far better for us to protect our children from getting these than from to, to deal with the aftermath, which can include, unfortunately, hospitalizations and death. Now, you know, as we look at vac vaccination rates in Ohio, we were pleased to see our, our statewide kindergarten vaccination rates uh, increased in uh, the 2022-2023 school year, the, 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 the previous year, after two years of decline. Um, but the, those rates, while they improved uh, after a couple of years of decline, are still not back to our 2019-2020 levels. So the, the year uh, you know, really before we were uh, uh, deep into the pandemic. But we are at least encouraged that we saw that increase last year. Um, now, our rates of exemptions did rise in the past school year, which also reflects a national trend. Uh, and exemptions for medical reasons or for reasons of conscience or religion are, in fact, in the Ohio Revised Code. Um, so uh, at, at the end of the day, but we, we certainly understand and respect the need for parents to be making the decisions about uh, their child's health care, including vaccination. But we really uh, 
believe the facts point very strongly to the wisdom of getting your child vaccinated against these very preventable conditions. Dr. Bruce Vanderhoff, director of the Ohio Department of Health from Thursday of this week. Good Sunday morning to you. Ahead today on Face the State. Supporters of Issue 1 erupted in cheers when Issue 1 on reproductive health and abortion rights passed and will be in the Constitution. Also, a big victory for supporters of Issue 2 legalizing recreational marijuana. Today, our experts break down the votes and what put the issues over the top. Plus, an election night victory for one man was an historic one for him and his city. Hear from Michael Bivens on what it means to him to be Whitehall's first black mayor. This is Columbus Perspective on the Fan, courtesy of our sister station, WBNS 10 TV. Here's Doug Petcash from his Sunday morning public affairs program, Face the State. A new edition can be seen this morning at 1130 on 10 TV. Thanks for joining us for Face the State. I'm Doug Petcash. Voters told us issues one and two were the two biggest items on the ballot on Election Day that drew them to the polls. Both measures passed with solid majorities. Issue one establishes in the state constitution an individual's right to one's own reproductive medical treatment, including abortion. Issue two legalizes recreational marijuana use by adults. Let's take a look at the numbers. Nearly 3.9 million Ohioans voted in Tuesday's election. 57 percent of them voted yes on issue one. Forty three percent voted no. The percentages turned out the same on issue two. Fifty seven percent voted to legalize recreational marijuana use. Forty three percent voted against it. Governor Mike DeWine and the First Lady came out strongly against Issue 1, appearing in an ad urging people to vote no. Two days after voters approved Issue 1, the governor said, quote, In this country, we accept the results of elections. Governor DeWine says he believes a majority of Ohioans want to see exceptions for rape and incest in any law restricting abortion, which the heartbeat law did not have. When asked if he will advocate to proceed with passing or repealing any abortion-related policies, he said this. I, I think it would be a mistake for me to put a timetable on anything. Uh, I, I just think that, you know, this will play out like every issue plays out. And, uh, you know, people will decide if they're comfortable with what we voted on uh, or they'll decide that it maybe needs to be changed or tweaked. I think, you know, that debate will bubble up. This morning, we have two experts to provide analysis on what happened with the big issues. Daniel Birdsong is a senior lecturer of political science at the University of Dayton. And joining me here in studio is David Niven, political science professor at the University of Cincinnati. Gentlemen, thank you both for being here this morning. First of all, David, let's start with issue one. What do you think about the difference in the percentage of vote, 57 to 43? Well, I think it's a fascinating example of a situation where this is exactly what the polls say. This is exactly what polls have said for years in Ohio, that a majority of Ohioans basically support abortion rights. And it's actually a very small minority who would favor a complete ban on reproductive rights in Ohio. Uh, Turning to Daniel now, Dan, what do you think put this vote over the top for supporters? 
Um, well, I think if you look at the electorate, uh, if you take the exit polls, for example, the electorate was uh, more female than male um, as a comparison to um, the census figures. Uh, so that was one thing. Uh, and I think almost 50 or 60 percent of the electorate was dissatisfied or angry about the uh, the Roe decision from the Supreme Court. And so they were energized, uh, certainly, and organized. Uh, and that makes a big difference come elections. And, uh, David, now that this will be in the Constitution, can lawmakers do anything about it? Well, it really returns Ohio to the status we had when Roe versus Wade was in effect, that there's a basic fundamental right here, but that doesn't mean states can't make laws around that right, you know, the logistics of that right, the, you know, the practicalities of it. So that, that's really very similar to where we were before the Supreme Court intervened. Would it take another amendment, basically, to override this amendment? <laughs> to, to fundamentally undermine reproductive rights would take another amendment, and that one of the interesting things about issue one you know the legislature obviously disagrees and you know is is rather extreme in its opposition to abortion rights they would need to go back to the voters the only way to undo this is to put this question to the voters again and ask the voters to undo what they just did and we'll see if that ever happens in the future now daniel the uh the ohio house pro-life caucus comprised of 27 representatives issued a statement saying they will do everything in their power to prevent our laws from being removed based Based upon perception of intent, referring to the the wording of the ballot measure. So, what can they do in their power? Yeah. So, um, I think what David was just talking about is trying to put up kind of restrictions or barriers, um, perhaps targeted towards uh, the doctors and what they have to do uh, when treating women. Um, and, you know, it just goes, there's going to be like a, a death by a, a thousand cuts kind of um, maneuvers here where they're really trying to um, kind of play the long game, right? A, a pregnancy happens on a very specific timetable. And if they can slow that down, it makes it harder for uh, women to, to get an abortion if that's what's necessary. So that's what the, what the Republicans said on this. Also, um, just on, let me see, Thursday, uh, Democrats in the State House introduced the Reproductive Care Act. It would repeal existing statutes related to abortion care, and it would add protections for patients and providers. Uh, David, why take this step when rights will be enshrined in the right. Constitution? Well, there's basically two paths. Sort of the easy, simple way would be for the legislature to repeal existing laws that conflict with the state constitution. The harder way would be to take it to the courts, just because, you know, that would be long and drawn out and contentious. Ultimately, there's absolutely no question that Ohio's current laws conflict with Ohio's constitution. So it's one path or the other. It's really a question of whether Ohio's Republican-led legislature wants to do this the easy way or if they want to drag this out. And, uh, Dan... Going forward, you know, this will take effect in 30 days or so. Do you know the process of what, what happen, has to happen for this to become an official amendment and then take effect? Uh, so it says in the in the Constitution or the language um, that it's self-executing. Um, right. So in the 30 days and it should go on the under the books, as it were. And then that's, uh, I think, why the importance of the the legislature to act, um, as David was saying, with the two paths. Are they going to make it easier? Or are they going to um, kind of play the harder game? Um, and I think that's essentially where we are, right, uh, is does the legislature move 
uh, kind of recognizing the will of the people and how people think about this issue. Switching now to uh, issue two, David. Um, in 2015, not a single Ohio county voted in favor on, on their total votes per county by county for legalizing medicinal and recreational marijuana. So what changed <laughs> in eight years? Well, you know, the culture changed. You know, one thing that we've seen is states around Ohio legalized, you know, and the, the conversation changed. Second thing that changes, we have medical marijuana. So it's, it's far less of a revolutionary idea to see legalizing marijuana. And then the third big thing is that issue specifically created marijuana monopolies. And so a lot of the the attack on that was whose pocketbook was going to be lined, whereas this was closer to a pure question of whether you favor this being legal or not. And there's also just, you know, generational change. You know, one thing the polling showed very clearly, younger voters overwhelmingly were in favor of this. They don't see why this is even an issue. And that was reflected in the vote. And uh, Daniel, this is a statute, not a constitutional amendment. Can lawmakers tweak change or or outright vote this down? I think they've already indicated that they're going to move perhaps on the cultivation of marijuana um, so they can uh, kind of tweak around the edges uh, as they see fit. For you, David, uh, despite virtually identical totals, uh, 57 to 43 for both issue one and issue two, the, the county by county breakdown is, is somewhat different. Do you think or you know, how does that factor perhaps into what the Republican legis dominated legislature uh, might do on, on issue two? Well, it really does show you a split. There were counties like Delaware County where issue one did far better than issue two. Then there were counties, really rural parts of Ohio, where issue two did better than issue one. So it's really a question of the kind of Republicans that you see. The, the more suburban Republicans, much more open to reproductive rights. The real rural areas, much more, you know, open-minded on the marijuana question and more kind of orthodox Republicans on reproductive questions. And finally, Dan, what do you see um, in terms of how issue two and legislation with it will, will go moving forward and what should we expect? Um, so I think what you'd expect is you know, maybe the piecemeal approach to to the issue. Um, I mean, if you looked at kind of the breakdown on um, on ideology in the in the polling or the exit polls, um, far more conservatives supported this much more than issue one. So there is some uh, support among conservatives around the issue of, um, of marijuana and marijuana um, use for recreational purposes. Um, and so I think, you know, there's probably some really interesting ways of thinking about it with respect to public safety. Um, certainly that can be um, addressed of how they're going to police uh, the use and then uh, perhaps the increase in, um, you know, the possible increase of uh, DUIs, but in this case being on um, marijuana rather than from alcohol. So really the policing of the effects of this uh, will be where they should uh, focus their attention. And we know the taxation will be 10% on top of the regular sales tax, and we'll see how the regulation part plays out as well as when all the retail can roll out as well. Daniel Birdsong at the University of Dayton, David Niven with the University of Cincinnati, thank you for your expertise this morning. Oh, really appreciate pleasure. it. Thanks for coming in. Well, this week on Wake Up CBUS, 10TV's Tracy Townsend looked ahead to the economic impact of the passage of Issue 2, legalizing recreational marijuana. She talked to Katie Kramer, the executive director of the Ohio Statewide Development Corporation, which helps small businesses get financing.
So first, let's start with the winners and losers from the passage of Issue 2, Katie. Sure. Well, at uh, the Ohio Statewide Development Corporation, we help small businesses access loans mm-hmm. to be able to grow, invest, and be part of the Ohio economy. Mm-hmm. One of the things that we're excited about from Issue 2 is that the law is going to create something called the Social Equity and Jobs Fund. This is going to help traditionally underserved, disadvantaged business owners have access to loans and grants mm-hmm. that will help them access licenses to be one of those new recreational use distributors. This is something that is really going to help them have access to Mm -hmm. a new economy. What's going Cons? Cons. What's going to be hard is that most small businesses receive the majority of their funding from federal programs, like the Small Business Administration or from the USDA. All of those programs are off the table for any cannabis-based business. Okay. So if they need help to be able to invest, they're going to have to seek other types of financing from specialized programs. All right, so people who would hear about the agency that you represent might recognize the names of some of the small businesses. What does mm-hmm. it mean for all of us as consumers now that this issue has passed? Well, one of the things that I think is great is that the tax rate on adult recreational use for Ohioans is going to be lower than other states, and it will be comparable so that consumers can access it, as well as small businesses being able to access this economy. Mm -hmm. We're hopeful that we can see even more specialized programs like what we've seen created in Colorado or Maryland or even in the city of New York to be able to help these small businesses grow locally Mm -hmm. and really contribute to our economy. Still ahead on Face the State this morning, making history in the city of Whitehall while on a quest to make a difference and a lasting impact on its people. Opiates has taken everything and everyone I've ever loved away from me. Everything. I blew my ankle out and I got prescribed pain pills by my doctor. If making my detox public is going to help somebody, I'm all for it. I just wish I would have had a warning. Opioid dependence can happen after just five days. Know the truth. Spread the truth. A message from Truth, the Ad Council, and ONDCP. You want to feel important. You want to be a part of something bigger, something that matters and can help change things. You want to feel like you belong. We know. We felt that way, too. And that's why we did something about it. We aren't just Army National Guard soldiers. We are normal people just like you. And together, we can make a difference. Take on your legacy. Visit NationalGuard.com to find out more. Sponsored by the Ohio Army National Guard. Aired by the Ohio Association of Broadcasters and this station. At Social Security, we are always thinking of ways to save you time and make things easier. That's why we created My Social Security. Opening a My Social Security account gives you secure access to your personal record and interactive tools tailored for you. You can see if you are eligible to receive benefits, view spousal benefit estimates, and compare retirement benefit estimates at different ages or dates when you want to start receiving benefits. Already receiving benefits? Use your account to change your address, set up or change direct deposit, get a proof of income letter, and more. In most states, you can also request a replacement Social Security card. Save time. Go online. Open a My Social Security account at ssa.gov slash myaccount. Social Security. Securing today and tomorrow. 
Produced at U.S. taxpayer expense. This is Columbus Perspective on the Fan. Back to Doug Petcash, courtesy of 10TV. Welcome back to Face the State. This election was an historic one for the city of Whitehall. Voters made Michael T. Bivens Whitehall's first black mayor in the city's 76-year history. Mayor-elect Bivens is currently the Whitehall city attorney. He says when voters elected him to that post, he became the city's first African-American elected official. But while he's making history, he really wants to make an impact in his new role as mayor. I talked with the mayor-elect about being Whitehall's first black mayor, what he wants to accomplish, and how he got here. The fact that the voters decided uh, to put me into this position, I'm extremely humbled uh, by it. And I come into this moment uh, very reflective, um, reflective of my past, reflective of my family, um, but more so reflective of the people that are coming into Whitehall, not only the young, uh, but the pe- the established residents and those who have been here for 70 plus years uh, to be an example of the fact that Whitehall has not rested on its laurels. It's always been able to change. And I'm a beacon of light for that change. And I'm excited and humbled by it. Do you see yourself as in a way as a role model? Absolutely. I always have and always will. Um, ever since I've served in the United States Marine Corps, I've considered myself to be a role model uh, just with the oath of office that we took there, um, the oath of office that I've taken from being a, a lawyer, um, and now the oath of office that I took from being the city attorney and even volunteering down at the, at the schools. Everything that I do is I consider myself to be a role model and an example to others. And I carry that on my shoulders and I love it. I embrace it. So what's going to be your top priorities as mayor? I want to continue the development uh, that's that's currently underway. But more than that, I also want to attack our poverty rate um, in the city of Whitehall. We're hovering right now at about 21 percent. And one of the main goals by 2028 is to reduce that by 10 percent. How do you do that? Uh, by creating strong community partners. Uh, we, have a, we have an example right now with Discover that has now come into the city of Whitehall. And one of the objectives of this business is to actually recruit Whitehall residents as its business plan. So the fact is, is if they lead the way of doing that as a major corporation, then the other corporations that will ultimately attract to the city, if that's their model and they're attracting those, those people from the city of Whitehall, then that's how we reduce the poverty rate here. Not only that, but also attracting workforce development partners like the African-American Male Wellness Agency and other workforce developers to actually get into the city, let them know, and create pathways of exposure so that people find their great best next. Because we're landlocked at five square miles, so we're always going to be a small city. But we also want to be able to give every single resident in this city big city opportunities so that they can experience all of the fullness um, that it is of being a citizen in this in this community. Bivens says he grew up in a single parent household and spent more than a year homeless. He says he's risen to where he is today through hard work and with support. It's interesting when you grow up uh, in that type of lifestyle um, and you know how to handle those resources. It doesn't feel like poverty. It doesn't feel like downtrodden. You, you roll with what you have, you work with it. And you, and if you have a mother like mine, who was just fantastic, um, and was able to weave 
a, a lifestyle for me and a vision for me that made me believe that if you work hard, if you stress education, if you're an honest person, and if you keep your head on straight, then every opportunity is available to you. And here I am today. And here he is today. Mayor-elect Bivens is a husband and father of two. He's also an avid fisherman. Check this out. He says his proudest fishing moment was landing this six-foot shark while fishing from the beach. He did release it back into the ocean. Bivens will be sworn into office as Whitehall's mayor on December 31st. Still ahead on Face the State, two men who have faced terrible loss talk about saving lives on our roads. 10TV's Dom Tiberi and Governor Mike DeWine talk about the positive impact the state's new distracted driving law is having in a short amount of time. It might be hard to imagine, but there's a place where you can find a restaurant on every corner. A place where you can eat like a king for as little as a dollar. It might be hard to imagine, but this is the same place where the school lunches aren't just delicious, they're themed. With palate pleasers like mozzarella stick Mondays, taco Tuesdays, and French Fridays. Heck, even pizza counts as a vegetable here. This is a place where the fast food just keeps getting faster. You can even order delivery right from your video game console. And how's the food, you ask? Well, it is to die for. Don't believe us? Just ask the friends and family of the 300,000 who did last year. Welcome to the state of America. Welcome to Obesity USA. Population 115 million and getting bigger by the day. To learn more, go to visitobesity.org. That's visitobesity.org. Brought to you by the Pennington Biomedical Research Foundation. Lexi spent more than six years in foster care. Before I was adopted, I felt alone. With help from the Dave Thomas Foundation for Adoption, Lexi now has a forever family and the foundation for a bright future. Adoption changed me for the better. I feel like I can be whoever I want to be. You can help find permanent homes for children still lingering in foster care. Learn more at DaveThomasFoundation.org. This is Columbus Perspective on the Fan. Back to Doug Petcash, courtesy of 10TV. On October 5th, police in Ohio were able to start giving tickets for distracted driving. Earlier this year, Governor Mike DeWine signed a bill into law making things like texting and driving illegal. Our Dom Tiberi joined the governor at a news conference on the day enforcement of the law kicked in. Last year, Dom testified in support of the law. Dom lost his daughter Maria in a distracted driving crash in 2013. Maria's message was created in 2016, and Dom has delivered her message to dozens and dozens of schools all over Ohio in the hopes of saving lives on our roads. Governor DeWine also lost a daughter to a car crash in 1993. Recently, Dom and the governor sat down together at the governor's residence in Bexley to talk about the, the impact the new distracted driving law and Maria's message are having. We know that we're saving lives out there every week. Uh, we know that distracted driving is a huge killer uh, in, in Ohio. And this is something that, you know, has changed in the last 20 years. Um, we have people on their devices and all kinds of things. The law is a teacher. And when the law passed six months ago, I went into effect six months ago, um, it really sent a signal to people, hey, this is important put your phone down. And we, even though we were not 
criminally enforcing it, uh, just giving warning signs, warning tickets the first six months. Uh, but we saw a drop in accidents. Uh, we saw a drop in fatalities caused by distracted driving. We anticipate now that the, the patrol and other law enforcement will can write tickets now for this. Again, uh, the idea is not to write tickets. The idea is to kind of change behavior. And we expect that this is going to even be bigger now as far as the lives saved. I liken this to when I was a kid. The governor, I no one ever wore seatbelts. Right. Now you don't think twice about it. And we need to make people understand that distracted driving is dangerous driving. This is just another tool in the toolbox to help change the culture. And we are a country of laws. And the fact that it is now against the law in Ohio, the majority of Ohioans are going to obey yes. the law. You mentioned that there was a decline in, in accidents and deaths, but I mean, it hit a six-year low pretty quickly. Um, Dom, when you see how quickly it's made you know, a substantial difference. I'm not surprised because the data indicated that other states that have done this, that this would, would do that. But, you know, I tell people, like I, I was at a high school, two high schools yesterday, and I tell them that I'm there out of love. And, and I mean this from the bottom of my heart. You know, there's nothing I can do to bring my daughter back. There's nothing the governor can do to bring his daughter back. And the empathy that we have, this is what this is about. We're trying to save lives. We're trying to keep other families from going through the nightmare of losing a child. And so, you know, this isn't about Maria. It's not about his beautiful daughter. It's about all the other kids. And, you know, I often say, you know, Every statistic has a name, and every statistic has a family that's missing them, and this is what this is about. And, you know, Maria's message is a, a message of love, and I know the governor's doing this with love in his heart because it's the leading killer of children, and we don't want to see any more kids killed. Yeah, there's nothing worse than losing a, a, a child. We don't want any other family to to go through that. And, you know, what Dom has done uh, is taken the, their great tragedy, their family's great tragedy, and it's the real push to go out and do some very meaningful things. And, Dom, speaking of that, I mean, how many schools have you spoken to and how many simulators are out there now? We just did 156, uh, 55 and 56 yesterday. Uh, we initially bought 54 simulators and we placed them around the state of Ohio, primarily with police departments. And now we've opened three simulator labs. We have one at the Tolls Career and Technical Center, Eastland Fairfield Career Center. And now we are excited to say we just opened one at uh, Fort Hayes. Each one features 25 state-of-the-art simulators, um, 16 different lesson plans. I, I think sometimes we accept deaths uh, in, as far as auto accidents. It's just kind of, oh, that's the natural course of things. We don't have to accept these. The fact that 16-year-olds are three times more likely than any other great age group to be killed in a car crash, that's not acceptable. And as parents and grandparents, I agree, we should be screaming, that's not acceptable. We can change this. It can be fixed. And you can learn more about Maria's message by going to 10tv.com. That's all of our time for today. Thank you so much for joining me this week for Face the State. I'm Doug Petcash. I'll see you next Sunday at 1130. Have a great day. 
That's again Doug Petcash, courtesy of our sister station, WBNS 10 TV, from his Sunday morning public affairs program, Face the State. A new edition can be seen this morning at 1130 on 10 TV. Were you exposed to hazardous materials while serving in the military and have an illness or condition as a result? If so, you may be eligible for VA benefits and services. Whether you need health care or want to file a disability compensation claim related to military exposures, VA is here to help. Visit va.gov forward slash military dash exposures to learn more and apply today. You served your country. Now let VA serve you. Between business life, social life, and her best bud, Loki, Beverly has a lot to focus on, especially while fighting Stargard, a blinding retinal disease. But she's not fighting alone. For 50 years, the Foundation Fighting Blindness has funded research into treatments and cures for blinding retinal diseases, providing hope to people with vision loss. And for Beverly, winning the fight means focusing on what's closest to her. The Foundation Fighting Blindness. Together, we're winning. Help us end blinding diseases at fightingblindness.org. Victor deployed for the first time to Afghanistan in 2003. He sustained a moderate traumatic brain injury. One of the most important elements of caregiving is taking care of yourself. For many military veteran caregivers, their caregiving journey starts earlier in life and lasts longer. Visit aarp.org caregiving for a free military veteran's guide to navigate your caregiving journey and better care for your loved one and yourself. Brought to you by AARP and the Ad Council. Cancer screening can save your life. Begin cervical screening at age 25. At 45, colorectal and breast screening. At 50, discuss lung screening with a doctor. Find resources for free and low-cost screening at cancer.org slash get screened. This is a public service message from the American Cancer Society. This is Columbus Perspective on the Fan. Hi, this is Dave James. On the phone with me is Dwayne Casares. He's the CEO of Directions for Youth and Families. Hey, Dwayne, how you doing? I'm doing good, Dave. How are you? I'm good. Thanks for talking to us. Congrats on the place on the east side. It's up and running. Yes, our uh, Clinton Community Center opened up a couple of weeks ago. Um, it's a new 24,000-square-foot community center um, in the Kimberly Parkway area. For our listeners, that is uh, the Eastern Mall area. Uh, there's very few resources out there, so uh, we have built a community center. We have 24 nonprofit partners that are going to join us there um, uh, to uh, give services to that community. And you are a nonprofit mental health agency. Tell us a little bit about what you do and, and how that center uh, works out for you. Yeah, we, uh, I mean, primarily we, well, the bulk of our agency, we serve about 6,000 kids in our counseling program. So we have various counseling uh, programs uh, that serve the entire city, actually the entire county. Um, all of our services are outreach, which means we go in the homes, schools, and community. We have two after-school centers, the Ohio Avenue Center, um, which is in between Mooberry and Livingston, and then now our new uh, Crittenden Center, which is in, on Kimberly Parkway. And they have afternoon uh, or after-school and summer programming, um, as well as various activities and uh, things that kids can be involved in. And, you know, every year when you have your State of the Child luncheon, that's really interesting because you bring in kids that are uh, playing in bands and that and playing music at, at these uh, after-school places. Yeah, you know, we have a, a music program at both centers. We've actually sent uh, seven kids to college out of our um, music center 
Homes. Um, all of our services are free, so uh, we just believe that all kids deserve um, opportunities to learn and grow and be healthy, uh, both physically, you know, mentally, and, and spiritually, however uh, that speaks to them. And that's the the kind of thing that's amazing because when you've got these kids that are in impoverished areas of the of town and they are just living under a lot of pressure and and a lot of stress to have access to computers and to musical instruments and dance classes and all that is just unbelievable. Yeah, you know, it's just huge. And uh, when you don't have any kind of outlet like that, that, that it really affects people and their and their sense of self and and even just their hope uh, for their own futures in that area that we're talking about where the new center is um there is no park and rec center uh there is no library so traditional things that people may turn to um to, to try to relieve some of the uh the hardships of being uh, in a high-risk impoverished area um are non-existent there so um we knew we needed to create something to give people some hope uh, uh to inspire them to uh um give them the same opportunities that other kids have and getting people involved in those new activities is in a way, akin to counseling on its own, isn't it? Yeah, all therapy doesn't just have to be sitting down, do a diagnostic assessment, develop a treatment plan, and then work it. Um, there's a lot of other things that are therapeutically healthy for people. Uh, you know, one area that, that we're, we're big on, and I even personally am, um, is exercise and mental health. So um, I always tell people, you, you don't have to do what I like to do. You find something you like to do and do it. So I happen to uh, uh, be in the gym every morning at 5.30 in the morning um, and usually lift for about an hour and 20 minutes. I just happen to like lifting. Um, I've always joked about the fact that he keeps me from being a serial killer. Um, but the truth of the matter is um, exercise has a huge impact uh, on mental health. So um, it doesn't even, I mean, it can be anything. You pick what you like. You pick what you want. There's so many different things you can do. Um, but just, uh, you know, endorphins alone are natural painkillers and, and mood elevators. Um, we do know that exercise helps improve sleep. So, and if you don't get your sleep, you know how cranky you are. I mean, so when we start really looking at, and these aren't things that cost you anything. It's just, you just should get out and do something. Um, even if, if it's just with a, a group, that's social interaction. You know, isolation sometimes is not good for mental health. Um, so if you can get yourself out and start to do things and, and be supported by others and encouraged by others, uh, it, it really does have a great impact on, on an individual's mental health. I know somebody who's uh, 70 years old who had a pretty serious surgery about a year ago and came through that well, and he now is telling me about how he's walking two to three miles a day and using an app on his phone to keep track of how much he's walking and said it's just like night and day, the difference mentally and physically. Yeah, well, you know, they, we do know that physical activity is linked to improved cognitive functioning, um, and, and it can uh, truly have an impact and enhance creativity and learning. So. Uh, Joining 
sense of belonging, which I think does a lot to an, an individual's uh, uh, um, uh, sense of uh, self-esteem and, and self-efficacy. Talking with Dwayne Casara, CEO, Directions for Youth and Families. Even if it's not so much physical activity in the sense of exercise, uh, if you you know start volunteering and getting out in the community and doing things like that as well, it would, ha- it would have the same impact, I would think. There's many studies about the healthy benefits of volunteering. Um, uh, many people will, will uh, uh, subscribe to the fact that if you are struggling with depression, um, one of the first things you should do is start volunteering somewhere. Um, you know, that gets you out of yourself and it gets you contributing to other people. Um, most people will say after volunteering, they get more out of it than what they actually put into it. Um, and, and that's just a great thing of, of being giving towards others and then getting back from them just because of your unselfish gift of giving. Uh, I, I think that's just like a, a beautiful circle. And with the holidays coming up, of course, uh, there's just a, pretty much an endless uh, array of opportunities for people to do that. Yeah, there certainly are. You know, it, it, it just check with any organization, almost every uh, nonprofit. I, you know, I'm chair of the Human Service Chamber Board, and um, there's 197 nonprofits who are part of the Human Chamber. So believe me, uh, there's one near you somewhere. <laughs> just Google it, and I'd be willing to bet that they have some type of holiday drive or some type of holiday support program that you can get involved in. I wanted to ask you, uh, since it is holiday season now, you know, with the service, the, the mental health services that you provide to kids, is this, generally speaking, a, a more difficult time of year for a lot of kids? Uh, you know, it can be for some, and then it's not for others. You know, you know, some kids who really, like, struggle with school, you know, they kind of get a break because, uh, you know, there's, there's the holiday or winter break, um, so that can be good, but other people in faith may not be struggling with school, but their families may not be the most functional, and then um, holidays are the times that the family gets together, so uh, that increases, so it's really different. It's, it's kind of like treatment when we uh, develop treatment plans for uh, people um, after we do an assessment with them. Every individual situation is different, so you have to tailor things to that specific person. Um, so it, it can have its pluses and its, its minuses, um, just depending on where you're at, um, what you're surrounded with, and where you are uh, physically, mentally, uh, um, uh, with those around you. So with kind of the chaotic schedule over the next, you know, five or six weeks with the holidays and, and winter breaks and all that, do you recommend the kids, uh, you know, try to maintain some sort of a pattern to not stray too far off the path during all this? Those are always good. Um, to, to have structure and on anything, to just give it up is going to create some type of chaos. Uh, and sometimes you got to remember, when, when you have structure, it's predictable. Um, and when things are predictable, there's a sense of familiarity. Uh, and when there's a sense of familiarity, there actually is a sense of safety. Uh, um, and it's in those safe moments that uh, you can take risks to grow and develop. So um, all of that plays in together. Uh, when you go from structure to non-structure, that can feel chaotic. Um, it can feel disruptive. Um, and that, it actually can feel scary for some people. Uh, so it's important to have some type of structure and pattern. Dwayne Casara sees the CEO Directions for Youth and Families. If folks want info about your agency, Dwayne, how do they find it? They can check us out at dfyf.org or they can call our intake department, 614-294-2661. All right. Happy Thanksgiving, Dwayne. Thanks. You too, Dave. Safe travels, buddy.
This has been Columbus Perspective, a weekly public affairs presentation of The Fan. Heard each Sunday morning at 6 on WBNS AM, that's 1460 ESPN Columbus, and Sunday morning at 7 on WBNS FM, Sports Radio 97.1 The Fan. Join us again next Sunday for Columbus Perspective.